Welcome to our latest installment of the Evolution Exchange Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm James Price, Senior Cybersecurity Recruitment Consultant here at Evolution, and today I'll be your host. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the future of application security, specifically emerging trends and threats. I'm fortunate enough to be joined by a fantastic panel, so let's kick off with some introductions. Chris, do you want to kick us off first with a brief introduction? Yeah, sure. My name is Chris Rodriguez. I'm the manager of application security at a company called Sabre. So Sabre is the infrastructure between online travel agents and everything travel, air, airlines, hotels, rental cars. Um, so if you guys are traveling for business, then you're most likely using Sabre's infrastructure. Brilliant. Thank you, Chris. And Mick? Yeah, I'm, I'm Mick Gum. I'm the director of product and application security at Medallia customer experience software company so if you've received uh, customer experience surveys in your in your gmail from marriott or some other big brands likely it sits for medallia or one of those customer experience brands but uh love appsec and i'm happy to be here yeah, thank you mick and jamie yeah i'm uh, jamie prosser i'm a senior manager in application security at verizon don't think i really need to say much about verizon um, I think everybody knows what that is, but I've uh, been with the company almost 30 years. So, and it's all in the application and application security side of things. So clearly got a passion there. Glad to be here. Cheers, Jamie. I'm finally Brandon. Hey everyone. My name is Brandon Evans. I'm an independent consultant and I also work with the SANS Institute. I am the host of our Cloud Ace podcast, which is a cybersecurity podcast specializing in cloud. And most of the time I'm spending uh, working on my course, SEC 510 Public Clouds, AWS, Azure, and GCP, which compares the big three cloud providers and shows how security solutions in one provider work well and in other providers work miserably. So if you'd like to check us out or take our free demo, check us out at sans.org slash SEC 510. Great. Thanks, Brandon. Now that we're doing the introductions, let's kick off with the questions. So Chris, your question to the panel was, how are you guys navigating the wave of AI tools and threats that seemingly popped up overnight after the release of ChatGPT? So Chris, if you could provide some context around your question, please. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, for those who don't know, ChatGPT is an uh, open AI product that was recently released and is being enhanced uh, every day, basically. And, you know, a lot of dev teams are are using it and developers are using it to to generate code and um and putting their code inside of chat gpt to to review and enhance and even maybe make it better performant and so i just wanted to see what what you guys are doing and how your your organizations are reacting to the use of chat gpt within your workforce thanks chris the context there uh mick do you want to kick us off Sure, I think uh, I think AI in general is is becoming very very interesting. Uh, with the advent of ChatGPT, I think we're going to see things move a lot faster in that AI space. But uh, I'll, I'll just say this on the on the ChatGPT front: I think that uh, bad actors are already working on using tools like that that uh, enable script kiddies, for lack lack of a better term, to uh, to look at ways that they can they can perform malicious acts against uh, companies. So um, from a technical standpoint, I think um, they're, they're probably going to take some time to get their heads around how that can help them. 
So uh, I think it's incumbent, incumbent upon us as security professionals to be looking into that and have that red team or purple team approach to um, AI technologies and make sure that we're we're staying aware of uh, any any progress that's made there. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can second a lot of what Mick said there. He said that very well. Uh, Chat GPD just kind of took the world by storm, and uh, you know now and and the professional space we're having to really kind of pull back and and evaluate exactly what what it's doing what it can do and at the same time take a look at what these bad actors are doing because they jumped on it right away uh, there's a lot of ai tools out there from a, a bad actor perspective I, I run a pen testing team as well and we're looking at ai to supplement with our pen testing to be able to keep up with what they're doing but absolutely from an industry perspective we just need to stay diligent and you know really do our research and stay on top of all the improvements and and things that are coming out because people are going to jump on this as quickly as they can well this is a very emerging technology so i certainly don't have all the answers or even close to all of the answers but it seems to me like one of the biggest threats that chris was referring to is that people are putting their source code on ChatGPT, and that could potentially result in some kind of sensitive data loss. And I'm mostly concerned about that when people have hard-coded secrets in their source code, which frankly is already a problem. You shouldn't have secrets in your source code because that means all of the other developers in your organization have them and can use them to access sensitive systems. So if we're following good coding hygiene in the first place, hopefully a malicious actor could not even take advantage of that code. But from the red teaming perspective, from the penetration testing perspective, I think the cat's out of the bag. It's just another tool that the attackers have in order to accelerate their attacks. And we just have to be that much more vigilant as a result and hopefully leverage this technology to come up with more creative defenses as well. So uh, have you guys started evaluating it within your team. So, for example, my team is a um, a hybrid. We we do security, but we also develop our own security tools and routines, automation, because we're all made up of previous developers. That's how I've built my team. Is uh, I'm a de I used to be a developer, and my team also used to be developers. So we're we're attempting to leverage what ChatGPT has to offer in order to um, accommodate some of the automation efforts and developments that we're doing. Uh, have you guys started, you know, trying to integrate that into your workflows as well? Yeah. So um, the, my team is very similar, Chris, to yours. We we have development backgrounds on some of it, and so we do develop a lot of our own security tools in house. Um, but for ChatGPT, ChatGPT specifically, uh, coming from such a large company with a, a larger security organization, it is. Um, has been immediately not allowed. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to do a lot more research and understanding of it before we're allowed to even begin using anything like that. But from the AppSec and pen testing side, we obviously are still researching it so that we can understand from the bad actors that will be using it. But from internally, from an organizational perspective, uh, most of the bigger companies that I have uh, spoken with recently are trying to stay away from it for now, just to not unleash things such as Brandon pointed out when, you know, source code and so forth may be not so secure. Yeah, I'll add on to what Jamie said. Um, as far as using it uh, individually, 
like within your own red teams. I think we should be careful about about that. Definitely uh, make have an idea of the abuse cases you want to tackle with AI before you go down that route. The other thing I'll say is that we should take a practical approach to handling these types of like bleeding edge technologies. I'll give you a quick example. Um, I think quickly we could see submissions and bug bounty programs coming through AI generated attacks. And so I think we should move quickly in terms of setting policies like Jamie's organization is doing on how we how we use that technology ourselves and how you know, from a from an external or bad actor perspective, what will allow, how we can protect against it, that sort of thing. And so I think I think we all need have some work to do for sure. And uh, for me, it's a pretty easy uh, thing to answer because uh, I have one employee and that employee is me, so I don't really have to get a whole lot of buy-in in my organization. But if I was working in a large organization, I would be a little skeptical of the approach of just blocking chat GPT altogether. I understand why folks want to do that, but as a former developer myself, I have to recognize that when people in security compliance or otherwise prevent people from doing their jobs or make their jobs harder, they bypass it. They are going to maybe use ChatGPT on their personal devices in order to get the answers that they want. And that can result in the absolute worst of all, all worlds. So I think we have to really accelerate our understanding of this so that we can embrace it in some form or fashion because the alternative is having zero visibility because i just don't believe developers are really going to listen to us if we say don't use this tool thanks brandon and thanks chris for that question some great insights there into the world of chat gbt next up we have mixed question which asks how have you been able to automate security testing as a part of a dev secops strategy so mick if you could provide some context around your question please yeah, thanks for letting me provide some context. Uh, first, I'll I'll say that I th I think I may have worded that question uh, inappropriately. I think I think the real the real question is how do you develop a DevSecOps strategy? Okay, because it's not just about the technology. It's not just about scripting things within the CI/CD pipeline, etc. It's really a, it's really about changing a mentality within your organization. And frankly, once you start going as you start going down that DevSecOps road, it, it takes a whole lot of collaboration with your development teams, with your DevOps engineers, just to just to get started. And I think that collaboration aspect is perhaps more important than the actual automation of, of security testing and other tasks. Um, I'll say from from my standpoint, um, I I'll give you a quick example. We encountered pretty quickly the fact that some of our engineering teams had had specific directives from our, our CTO that uh, that we needed to know about before we started tackling DevSecOps. One, of course, was we we they wanted to lower their build times. So naturally, we we were you know considering doing security testing within builds. Use a build step, try and make it as as, as seamless as possible, and and it as quick as possible, but naturally that would affect their build times. Well, we were able to find some other ways of doing our, our DevSecOps effort and automate security testing in other ways. So I think those conversations are the first things we want to talk about, but I'm definitely interested to hear what everybody else has to say about it. Thanks, Mick. Uh, Jamie, do you want to kick us off with this one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so 
it's funny because the other half of my team is um, automation, <laughs> security automation. Um, and you're right, it's more than just the tools. You know, any any tool can be used. You can plug it in, SaaS, DAS, doesn't matter. Um, the big thing is the conversations and the collaboration, as, as Nick spoke to. You know, having that that partnership, that relationship with your dev teams and across an, an enterprise or global organization, communicating with them. Don't just push it out. Hey, here we have security. We've built this automation tool for you. Put it in your build. Put it in your pipeline. Because you're right, those builds have to be quicker. They, you know, they can't be stopped because of a false positive, for example, you know, which might kill the build. Um, so having those conversations, explaining and making sure that the dev teams understand that shift left, you know, mentality, you know, why is it important that we have security early on, you know, the, the, the cost savings, the, the savings uh, of, of the data for our customers and our employees and all of that information, making them understand that, yeah, while well, you guys, your job is to just spit out the code, right? Get the, get the business needs met. At the same time, we need to make sure we're doing that securely and how we can work together uh, to automate that and, and get it into a pipeline if possible. And in some cases, like Nick mentioned, it, it's not always possible to just stick it right into that CI/CD pipeline. But you know, there's that whole dynamic duo, right? Dove and, and Sec, they need to work together. But definitely having those open conversations, trainings, uh, you know, presentation, demonstration, getting them involved enough without taking too much of their time to understand the importance of security will help bring that automation in, I think. This is a very interesting conversation. And uh, here at SANS, other than teaching my course, I also have taught our course on DevSecOps, Cloud Security and DevSecOps Automation, Sec 540. And I think that Mick really just nailed uh, the, hit the nail on the head with a lot of the matters there. Uh, and that's pretty impressive, despite the fact that DevSecOps means so many different things to so many different people. I definitely think it's not just primarily about the culture. I think DevSecOps is an almost explicitly cultural movement. But on that subject, Mick mentioned one thing that was really interesting to me, which was that we need to have our developers work together with our DevOps professionals. But in a organization, in my opinion, that's really practicing DevOps, those two are the same folks. We have people who specialize in application development and specialize in CI CD pipelines. But the idea, in my view, of DevOps is to have our developers own the operations of their application. So they are involved with the creation of their pipelines. They are involved with the operations of their infrastructure, both on-prem and in the cloud. And I think that that is where you bring security into the picture. You have to make it so that the dev team is working on operations as well as security. And this doesn't mean that we just offload all of this responsibility to the developers. I'm not saying, hey, give these overworked people just so much more work. But I think it is a matter of having that shared responsibility and getting people invested in security. One of those areas that I'm really passionate about is a security champions program. And I actually got into security through a security champions program where my former employer gave me free training and certifications as long as I could take what I learned and evangelize it within my development organization. So I think once you do that and you show your developers how cool security is, 
you can have those conversations about what tools make sense in the pipeline, what tools need to be run out of band, and uh, they'll end up driving a lot of your security initiatives for you and do it a lot better because they have that context. Yeah, you know, what you guys have said so far is exactly the type of thing that we're doing over here. So, you know, in order to get DevSecOps started and really integrated into the organization, it really, like you guys said, it comes down to the culture. And that's one of the driving principles that my team has tried to do is create a uh, security-centric culture within our dev teams to help uh, evangelize our uh, our security um, tools and, and strategies. And so one thing that we try to do is um, we have these training sessions that we call Zero to Hero, where we go over a topic um, from the beginning and train the, the dev teams or whoever joins uh, throughout that topic. And that has been really popular with our dev teams. It, first, it makes the application security team uh, look like humans because it's people up there talking professionally in front of dev teams instead of sending emails that say, hey, you need to fix this right away. You know, So that's that's how we, we try to bond with the dev teams in, in these types of trainings. And through that, we, we demonstrate our how how we prefer to do things or what is expected um, during their processes. And, and that's really helped a lot with our, our culture and helps um, build our DevSecOps environment. Yeah, I'd love to hear about or other organizations actually creating that partnership because um, there are a lot of different ways we can do that. Obviously, working, working with development teams pretty closely to work on automation is fantastic. Brenda mentioned the Security Champions program. I love that we have one of those in Medallia. And every company should have one of those. Frankly, it, it, it helps developers to learn more about security, which we need. They're not taught it enough in, in common courses in college. They're just not. And it's always an afterthought because they care more about deploying new features, right? So that's that kind of answers the first part of my question. I wanted to focus on you know, evangelizing the culture and having that partnership. Sounds like we're all going down that road, which is awesome. The other aspect, of course, is how are we actually automating it? And and I think uh, Jamie already touched on this a little bit, but um, the question is where do we automate and how do we automate? And fortunately for us in AppSec, there are a lot of tools out there that are cross-functional. They cover a lot of the c common languages that we use. And they're fairly easy to automate because they can integrate with uh, CI/CD tools, and we can simply add build steps and stuff. But um, I think my own personal thoughts are it's probably going to depend on the organization, how much you automate, where you automate, how much you can shift left. But uh, those are my initial thoughts. Yeah. Um, so real quick, just to touch on what Brandon said, um, we also have a security champions program, and that's exactly what it is. We have dev folks that we have, you know, who who want to learn security. And so we, you know, they're, they're that middle ground, right? They're still dev, but they've gotten all the security training and they continue to get training and they work very closely with the security side, the AppSec, the DevSecOps, but they're building those pipelines, right? They're, they're building that stuff themselves and they're automating and that's helping them to understand it. Um, and, and to mit, uh, mix second part of his question, how do we automate? Where do we automate? That, that is a big question. And that is definitely probably based on the organization you know, being as large as, as our organization is, uh, and a lot of companies are, are large, you know, we have thousands on thousands, you know, of applications. So 
you know, we, we kind of focus. So, all right, well, we have pen testing that can focus on our higher value assets and really spend a lot of time there. So let's kind of move more of that automation toward those lower risk applications and have them, you know, they're still a risk, right? So you have applications that are still important and they still need to be testing and, and be secure, you know, but they can do it a little bit more frequently. They can, you know, build it in and not be as affected as much, but it is definitely, I think, dependent on the organization. And I, I would be also interested to see what other, uh, both small and large organizations are doing for that, because I think it helps across the industry. And just to add on one of the things that Mick said earlier about that fact that a lot of people, if not everybody, is when they're going through college, they're not learning about cybersecurity. I'd also like to add that a lot of people that go through a CS program also don't know what actual software engineering looks like because a lot of these degrees provide really abstract, high-level understandings of computer science and not a whole lot of practical elements. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, we also have this huge development of coding boot camps where people are transitioning from one organization to another, uh, from one type of work to another by learning concepts around web application development. And I used to teach at one. And in that regard, you have folks that have really no time to even learn about security. If they're trying to transition into this kind of field, it's hard enough to do that without learning about security as well. So you uh, really need to have a program like a security champions to help bring them into that fold. And we're going to be, uh, this is going to be a really difficult issue to deal with all sorts of different folks from different backgrounds. How do we get them interested and invested in security? It's going to take a lot of work. And if you're not already working with a security champions program, it's time to start investing there. Yeah. I'll just try and wrap up and, and uh, provide a segue into our, our next topic. Um, so Jamie, Jamie was curious to see how, how other people are automating. So I'll just tell you how, what we're doing at Medallia. Static analysis, we're automating um, on PRs. I think that's, that's one of the best places to do it. Just shift it further left in the build step. So we're doing static analysis as soon as we get check-ins. Um, software composition, composition analysis or dependency analysis or software supply chain security, uh, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. There are multiple ways where I, I think you can tackle that. Um, we're doing that on builds and it, it other steps in our SDLC. And then naturally for dynamic analysis and pen testing and stuff, as soon as you have kind of a live environment, um, we're doing that. We have a, a test environment that we use for that. So luckily, I, th I think that's kind of the rule of thumb and most people are, are doing that, but I thought I'd I'd share. Yeah, thanks, Beck, and thank you for that question as well. So our penultimate question today comes from Jamie, who asks, what is your approach to API security given the uptick in API development use and obviously sub subsequently attacks? So Jamie, if you could provide some context around this question, please. Yeah, absolutely. So um, obviously API has become like a huge huge attack vector um you know more and more people are not just developing but reusing apis you know uh both open source and not you know just hey i can i can use this one function and i don't have to recreate it right so a lot of folks i think think that the api is uh because i'm just focusing on this one little piece i don't really have as much of a security issue to worry about because you know, I'm sending over here, they're going to worry about that, or it's coming from over here, they're going to worry about that, or I'm using this gateway, you know. Um, and we're seeing a lot, if you just follow the news, 
you know, the T-Mobile breach was a good example, and I'm not calling T-Mobile out, but I'm just saying that was a public one. Um, you know that they were a good exa- a recent example, and there's been a number of others that are that are API, right? So that's where the attacks are starting to happen a lot more. So obviously API security is a big focus. So I'm just curious as to um, the approach that others or in the industry are taking to API security as a whole. Thanks, Jamie. And we'll start off with Brandon for this question. Yeah, it's a very interesting question because as a developer who's uh, written a lot of applications as we've transitioned from more traditional monolithic applications with an MVC model to API, I found that API-based development has been uh, largely the same and especially from the realm of security. So now instead of focusing on both security on the front end and the back end, you're really focusing on just the back end, which is where you should be focusing on anyway, because you can put a lot of uh, obscuring of security flaws on the front end, but that doesn't stop the attacker from going to the API directly. So I think, honestly, API and microservice development should be enabling people to do security better because it's a lot more clear where the information is coming in, what kind of validation you have to do, and what kind of authentication and authorization controls you have to implement. But I think on the other side of the conversation is also the security of sending data to third-party APIs. And that is, in a way, like another form of supply chain uh, issue, which we're going to talk a lot more about soon. Who are you trusting your data with? Don't just send data to a API just because it's helpful. Understand that this is just another vendor like anyone else. And if you're accepting data from them, you also have to make sure that you don't trust that data. You're doing validation at the uh, closest to your application level as possible. So at the API level, instead of on the front end, just like we mentioned earlier. So I think if you follow those principles, you're in great shape. And it seems like if there are a lot of security issues around APIs, it seems to me more indicative of the fact that people are just not following basic common sense application security principles. Yeah, so API security, you know, all, all of our CISOs went to um, all these conferences last year, and I'm sure everyone came back and said, hey, what are, we, what are we doing about API security? And so um, that's been a big topic over in our organization. And, you know, I think as, you know, tech companies as a whole, before, you know, um, API security was kind of not really talked about. And I think it was most like, likely because um, they were, uh, our dev teams were convinced that obscurity was going to protect them because how would they know our endpoints? How would they know our routes to hit? You know that kind of thing. It it kind of gave them a false sense of of security with you know how how would they know our targets? But now that there are specialized tools for finding these APIs, I mean they call the APIs within their web applications anyway. Um, it's it's something that we need to think about. And so, API API security is something that um, you know that we've hit hard as well. So you know some of the things that an organization could do is um, do penetration testing on the APIs. And so that's, you know, that's something that, that we do for our APIs and it's, it's does, it's done wonders for our posture. Um, one thing that we did was a, um, I held a zero to hero session teaching uh, our dev teams on how to do penetration testing on their own applications. And so I demonstrated how they would do that on their APIs. And so that shifted the penetration testing 
from on your, you know, pre-production production sites left as far as we could go to so allow the dev teams to find their own vulnerabilities in their APIs. And so that's, you know, that's some ways that we've been able to up our game in the API security realm. I think this is a gap for most organizations, to be perfectly honest. And and frankly, it's it's different than most typical applications. A lot of applications are web applications. Nowadays, they're not client-server. And Brandon highlighted some of the differences between API, typical APIs and web applications. They can't be really be handled um, the same. So I, I can I can say that I think that's a gap in my organization. I wish there were a way for us to, I don't know, use AI or ML to to be able to test uh, APIs better. Um, maybe we'll have that at some point, but I think right now my, what my organization is doing is a combination of threat modeling. And again, that's working with, with developers pretty closely. We call it our purple teaming exercises. And then we couple that with what Chris just mentioned, which is pen testing. A lot of uh, a- APIs um, are are exposed, and companies have gaps there because they don't they don't you know, the company doesn't fully understand what functionality is in the API, and then they don't lock it down enough. It's almost always about um, authorization and how their data is being exposed. If you look at the a- the OWASP API top ten, about half of those have to do with authorization or authentication. So that's that's the main aspect you you want to look at. We do that's the first thing we look at when we do threat modeling and when we do pen testing. Uh, those are targeted abuse cases, but um, naturally there's a lot of other abuse cases that uh, I don't think organizations are tackling very well. Yes, I wanted to piggyback on what Chris mentioned earlier about how developers are assuming that their APIs are not discoverable, and as a result, they don't have to worry about the security of those APIs. This is so funny to me because in many cases, APIs are well-documented with things like Swagger. And they literally tell you, here is how you talk to the API. That's how a lot of these are designed. But also, as Chris mentioned, there's also the web interface interacting with these APIs as well. So you could kind of reverse engineer the web interface. Uh, This reminds me of a story that I'll really quickly summarize. Uh, Prior to getting involved with security, I worked for this organization as a developer that did uh, Internet of Things security cameras. And basically, we would integrate with these Internet Internet of Things security cameras in order to expose these cameras to the cloud securely and embed with all sorts of cool features that we had. So I was given the task of integrating this camera from this relatively well-known company into our area. And they had a document explaining how to do various functionality. They said, here's how you set a password, here's how you change the brightness, all of that good stuff. And I worked on that integration, but then I also started reverse engineering the web interface to see what all is going on. And I discovered an API that allowed you to reset the password of the camera without knowing the current password of the camera, basically destroying authentication on this camera altogether just because I looked underneath the hood. So it's really funny that people depend on security by obscurity. And to tie this back to what Mick was saying, a lot of it comes down to authorization, like really basic stuff. Like if you can explain a security flaw to a family member that doesn't work in IT, you're missing something very significant. Like everyone can understand 
that you should not be able to do things in an application unless you are authorized to do those things. Like I can explain that to a child. So the fact that people are making those kinds of mistakes shows to me much more either fundamental misunderstanding about security or just bad development practices and bad frameworks that would result in such a flaw. Yeah, um, actually to touch on what everybody has been saying here, um, you know, back to Chris's point about uh, the developers thinking that they're protected because you can't find it just and then Brandon saying, you just look under the hood. It's it's not that hard, right? And and it's not. Uh, in my experience, a lot of developers kind of think, oh, it's, it's an API that's not a web app, that's not web-enabled. It doesn't need the same type of security. It doesn't need the same type of security testing. You know, um, we, we, we focus very heavily on, you know, we have, we have automation built in for uh, dynamic API security testing and then open a uh, API security testing before there's actually code. You know that that's important, and we you know are working to get that integrated. But I mean, there's APIs that we probably you know out in the world that people don't even know exist, right? All over the place, you know, a lot of third parties, things of that nature. So, you know, getting that fundamental knowledge, as Brandon pointed out, about you know understanding the authorization is it's easy to explain. If they don't understand the basics of the security, then that's going to be our first and foremost problem. And and you know uh, all the testing in the world will find that stuff, but it doesn't mean it'll fix that stuff. So you know we do have a lot of uh, standards and and developer gear documentation and training that is like, hey, just follow these simple rules. Just, just look at these steps, check this list, and say, does my API follow these things? You know, out of the OWASP top ten, for example, and and you're going to be covered for the most part. So absolutely, I think um, outside of just the testing piece of it, we need to get that education and knowledge over to developers and make them understand that it's not hard to pop that hood and see all of it. So. Thank you, Jamie. And finally, we have Brandon's question, which asks, how are you handling software dependency analysis in the wake of supply chain zero days? So Brandon, if you can kind of give some context on this question, please. Oh, I can talk about this forever. So please cut me off if I go over, but oh my goodness, supply chain is both my favorite thing to talk about and the number one thing that keeps me up at night because we have so many different issues out there. There is the issue of zero day vulnerabilities, like you mentioned, like Log4j, where there is an application uh, component that has a vulnerability that was introduced by accident. But you also have other instances in which repositories that are working perfectly fine get hijacked by an attacker they're able to publish malware on that repository, and now everybody's pulling in that code to be executed. And then there's a new kind of issue that started happening in 2022 called protestware, where people are hijacking or re, uh, reappropriating their own code in order to make some kind of political statement. There was this individual back in 2022 who wanted to protest the Ukrainian war, and as a result, he changed his code to add some malware that would do a geolocation lookup. And if his code was running from either Russia or Belarus, that code would overwrite every single file on the file system with an ASCII character of a heart. And this really fundamentally shows how we are just trusting strangers on the internet to write 90% of our code, 90% of the code that organizations ship were not written by said organization. So what can we do to solve this issue? 
I think we have several solutions and none of them are even remotely foolproof. We have software component analysis, which I think is fantastic. It's able to show that you're using a piece of code that has a known vulnerability. But number one, that does not necessarily demonstrate that your code is going to use that code in a way that it's vulnerable because just because the thing is vulnerable does not mean you're, you're using the vulnerable component, but also that doesn't find a zero day at all. It can find a zero day because if there is a vulnerability, then it wouldn't have been published to the so uh, software component analysis uh, database. So that's part of it, but it's not going to solve a zero day. I And it's also definitely not going to deal with the hijacking issue or the protestware issue. So I think one of the most important things you can do is have your own internal source code repository, your own package repository that you're pulling your packages from. And there's now a delay between the public packages and your internal registry. And that way you're not necessarily pulling the latest version of the code, which was republished with malware. Not a perfect solution, not even close to one, but uh, definitely a place to start. Thank you, Brandon. We'll start the kickoff with Chris first. Yeah, so, you know, the software supply chain, it's not just at build time. It's not just at, you know, testing. It's the whole, the whole, you know, production line. And so at each point, there's certain things that you have to, you know, consider before you move on to the next section. And so, you know, this, this is public. The, you, we we were working with Google um, and something that Google has implemented was a um, the Salsa framework. And so Salsa is, is trying to secure your software supply chain. And, you know, this, it's, a, it's an amazing framework that it can, you know, if you look at it too hard, it's going to, you know, fry your brain. But if you take it in chunks and try to implement that inside of your software supply chain, um, at the different stages, you're going to really build a good, you know, Providence type of um, solution that you can actually trust. And so some things that you can do before you jump into something like Salsa is, you know, create a firewall of of those dependencies that you're that you trust. You know, maybe they don't have CVSS of nine or above. And so you can say, hey, your dev teams can use these components. Uh, but once you start telling dev teams what they can and cannot do inside of their code, you know, it, you start to ruffle feathers. So having that walled garden of dependencies that they can pick from, it is a solution, but it's something that you should, you know, you're going to have to be careful with it because it's not everyone's going to be as respective of it. And then something else that you can do is for that su software supply chain is monitor um, for those zero days. So if, you know, either your cyber threat team or maybe one of your vendors who are handling your your dependency repository, but you know, hold those hold them responsible for finding those uh, protest wares or those malicious node packages that keep getting uploaded. Um, and so you know, it's it's a multi-person team that that you're gonna have to leverage with your your team and your vendors. Yeah, so I love that Brandon pointed out to start with that this software supply chain security question is super broad, and it's one of the biggest question marks for for most companies. They're not securing their software supply chain, and, and that category includes multiple groups of threats. 
One, of course, is how do you, how are you controlling access to your source code? Can people go in and and you know reuse one of your repos to be proliferating ma malware? Right, that's one of the questions. And then also along the same vein, you have other partners and or tools that you're using for your DevOps pipeline. Have you locked down those tools? Can someone get access to them? Especially if you're using like, for example, a, a cloud-hosted uh, build system. How how comfortable are you with their security practices? Could that be, you know, used for nefarious activities? Um, and then lastly, of course, there's the question of people using free or open source or third-party libraries within their own source code. Brendan already said that that ninety percent of the software out there is is that we our companies are using is from somebody else, and that can and should happen, right? Because why why would you why would you roll your own crypto library if you can use Bouncy Castle, right? Something that's well understood, well documented, and and works pretty well, right? So it can and should happen. But as security professionals, this is one of the hardest things for us to do uh, because the first two categories, in in my mind, are kind of like a shadow development to use that to leverage the the shadow IT um, concept. Um, simply because it's hard for us to get visibility into the, the platforms, the partners that we're using, and everything else. But look, let me let me touch really quickly on this third category, using third-party third party libraries. I think this is one of those um, areas in DevSecOps where we need to leverage all of the different, the cool little buzz phrases that we, we, we throw out. Use DevSecOps, use automation, use shift left. I'll tell you what we've done in my organization. We actually assess third-party libraries at multiple points in the SDLC. We have a tool that assesses third-party libraries as soon as they're brought in and make sure that we're, we're using the most up-to-date version, which is kind of the, the first line of defense, right? If you're using an outdated one, it's likely that it's going to have performance and or security issues, right? So we try and make sure we use the most up-to-date one. Then we use naturally an SEA tool. We plug that into the build step. By the way, rule of thumb, I think, is to use it at the build step because in some cases you're not pulling in third-party libraries um, until you get to that build step. So we use it there. And then last of all, as Chris pointed out, I think make sure you have a CSPM or some other tool that's monitoring your production environments. So that in a case of a zero day, you have to scramble and do some, a lot of manual work to figure out, oh, where are we using log4j? Log4shell's out there, right? So... We have to we have to use all of those tools at our disposal, I think, to make sure that we're we're not being going to be dramatically affected by another zero day from a third party library. Uh, you know, being last to this question uh, kind of benefits me because you guys have said so much already and have pretty much hit all the points. You know, just to kind of reiterate a couple of them. You know, to Chris's point about um, the the different steps throughout, and and Mick kind of talked about it in the you know with third party libraries there's different places, you know, we use third-party tools that have partners, right? So you have to kind of hold them accountable, um, make sure that they are doing their due diligence from a security perspective. And when they're coming in, you do your risk assessments and you do your intakes and you make sure, hey, show us the proof. Proof is in the pudding. Show us that you're you're doing the security testing and, you know, you're up to date, you're patched. And then, you know, then you have uh, the open source and, and the third-party libraries, you know, those that the developers just kind of bring in when they want, right? So you have to really kind of be able to monitor that and where are they getting them from. And as as um, Brandon pointed out, having your internal source code repositories that are locked down 
to just the people that should have access to them. And, and even internally with a company, you know, just because team A uh, does development doesn't mean that they should necessarily have access to team B's stuff if there's no need to share that code. And that might help prevent some of that crossover, you know, unauthorized access. But definitely, I think it's a multi-step process. You have to think of the security at everywhere from, as, as Mick said, we can bring it in all the way up through monitoring and prod, you know, have your, have your RASP tools, have your WAF tools and things actually monitoring for those attacks, monitoring for the zero days and, and, you know, try to catch those when you can. I understand, like Jamie mentioned, that there's a huge impulse to be able to look at the source code libraries, where they're coming from and how they're being used. But I think one thing that people have to really recognize is that is not something you can do for all of your code. I have seen in some ecosystems, like the JavaScript ecosystem, that the most popular library, I believe, has like a thousand dependencies and like the next most, a like hundred most popular libraries are dependent of like over tens of thousands. We, we cannot feasibly look at all of these libraries and determine whether or not they're safe or not. So I think that delay does help. But another thing that people keep talking about, but I never see in production, is runtime uh, application security uh, protection, RASP. Everybody keeps talking about it. Hey, we should make it so that our application is unable to do things physically that we don't want it to be able to do. Well, who here is implementing RASP today? Like, basically no one. Well, I'm glad that uh, Mick and Jamie are, which is impressive but uh, not something that I've really seen in a lot of different organizations, at least on protection mode, maybe on audit mode where it finds things that are suspicious. So hopefully more organizations like Mick and Jamie's will invest in that area. And uh, the final thing that I wanted to mention was regarding what Mick said about, um, oh gosh, I forgot about what Mick said. Mick said something really poignant. It's gonna come back to me later, but uh, I really uh, appreciate uh, the feedback that you um, all provided on this. It's a very important problem that we're going to have to do a lot of work to resolve. Thanks, Brandon. I'm Mick. Yeah, I just want to add, I, lo I love that Brandon made a plug for, for RASP. Um, frankly, it's it's not a well-known, well well-used technology. You're right. And uh, my organization actually kind of fell upon it kind of on accident because the way we have our infrastructure laid out, we couldn't feasibly use a conventional WAF. And RASP was a much easier technology for us to implement across our different environments, right? We're using hybrid cloud, multi-cloud type, type of environment. So as far as implementation goes, RASP is way easier to implement. It's kind of an agent-based tool. We, we create a feature request, excuse me, a pull, a pull request, and then deploy that agent, and we can do a lot of monitoring and blocking uh, dynamically. Um, it's a fantastic tool. Definitely uh, support that argument. More organizations should should definitely use RASP. I'm glad that we do, and it's a it's a pretty useful tool. Yeah, just very quickly, I remember the thing I was going to comment about regarding Mick is that he mentioned that it is actually a good thing that people are using third-party libraries. I think it's both inevitable and a good thing. And really, if you're thinking otherwise, if you're here listening and you're saying, you know what? No, the risk of using this third-party code is too tremendous. Well, then I would have to ask you, where does that logic end? 
are you going to use your own programming language that you've written? Because how can we truly trust Python, for example? That was written by a third-party uh, entity. Um, what about your computer processor? Are you going to write your own uh, chip? I mean, can we really trust Intel or AMD? And you know what? Frankly, can we really trust the power grid? Where is our electricity coming from? Can we ensure that that electricity comes into our machines in a way that doesn't result in some kind of outage or issue? So that paranoia can just spiral out of control and, and you have to find a balance. The answer is not to ban open source technology. And if you wanna get some shadow IT in your organization, tell developers that they can't use third-party components. They will never listen to you again if you do that. Thank you, Brandon. And thank you all for your questions and answers today. Some really good insights and hopefully you've all enjoyed today's conversation. I'd like to thank the four of you for joining me outside of your busy schedules to come together and have a great conversation around such an important topic within the application security space for business as they look to grow. We'll leave it there for now. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. Thank you for listening.